Well, thank you um, so much for being here today and, and for, for having me uh, as a presenter. I'm, I'm really excited and, and feel very privileged to be able to be here and uh, to, to speak uh, a bit about the topic of mental health and mental illness and faith and community and a bit about uh, my book, which is called Christ on the Psych Ward. Uh, here's what I'd like to do during this first part of the afternoon. Um, I work at a Jesuit institution, so this is the way of proceeding here that we're going to do. Okay? <laughs> um, uh, I, I want to start by talking about story, about the power of story, the reason and the gift uh, within uh, why I tell my own story of mental illness and mental health struggle, and also some of the limits of that approach and of my story. Uh, and then I want to, secondly, tell a bit of that story, um, and in that hopefully kind of give a, a bit of a synopsis of the book so you have some sense of, of what it covers. And then finally, third, I'd like to kind of provide three uh, theological provocations. Um, some things that I either touched on in the book but wish I had had more time to develop and maybe didn't quite know how, or some things that I, I hadn't thought of when I was writing the book and would love to take this opportunity to throw them out there and see what sticks and see what sort of reactions or conversations happen around those. So that's the, that's the general idea, um, and I think, uh, I think we can do that with plenty of time for good conversation. So, great. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so a little bit about story. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, uh, type 2 bipolar disorder, after a series of psychiatric hospitalizations uh, that started the summer after my first year of seminary. So I'd finished my first year at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and had um, done quite well, if I do say so myself, um, and then uh, found myself in the hospital and in this new world of having this diagnosis and taking medication and, and trying to kind of grapple with uh, the reality of that in my life, even as I tried to kind of continue to figure out my vocational life and, and my schooling. Um, and I, so I tell this story uh, because it breaks silence and it breaks stigma, and it challenges shame around mental illness and mental health struggles in a really direct way. Um, it's a way for me to go first, to uh, hopefully create some space, particularly within faith communities, for other people to feel safe in sharing stories or struggles uh, that are often silenced, um, by stigma that is both societal and often amplified within faith communities. Um, and it also makes the point in an embodied way that people with mental illnesses are not solely objects of care, but that we are subjects with our own faith perspective, spiritual truths, and good news to share. We're not just bad news. We have good news to share. Um, and I share all that because I give a lot of talks at churches, and often those conversations center around um, how can faith communities, how can congregations, how can churches um, be, be better at kind of being in ministry with people who are in mental health struggles. And that's very important work, and I'm very, I love doing it. I like having that conversation. Uh, it's not the primary reason I wrote the book, right? The, this, this book wasn't primarily a sort of a 101 guide for uh, churches to be in ministry with people with mental health struggles. This was a book about uh, my experience with God, with Christ, in the midst 
of mental health struggle and the experience of living with a mental illness, right? That was my, my primary um, motivation in writing it. Um, so, um, so telling my story lets me do both of those things, right? It lets me both uh, start those conversations that churches need to be having about ministry, about some of the practical stuff, casseroles and et cetera, and also um, allows me to make the, make the point in a very direct way that, that people with mental illnesses um, have an experience of the divine that is, that is to be shared, as are all our experiences with the divine, right? Um, there are some limits to the storytelling model, and I think it's helpful to name them. Um, there are many. I'll name a few. Um, I am someone who carries a relatively privileged voice in this conversation. Um, and there's kind of two aspects of that that I want to point to. One is the, the aspect that as somebody who carries a lot of societal privileges, um, I am able to tell my story relatively safety, safely without experiencing a lot of repercussions that keep many people from sharing their stories. And I want to honor that. Um, I want to create space for people to share their story. And also, there are people who are in positions, jobs, family situations that preclude them from being able to be honest about their experiences. And until we've eliminated the real power that stigma and shame and silencing still holds, right? I, I can't force anyone to tell their story. I don't want to put anyone uh, in the position of, of having to tell their story. So I think it's, it's important to name that, that the, this model um, works for me, but not, might not work for everyone, right? Um, the, the other thing is that my perspective is privileged uh, in my, my experience of mental illness is, is a privileged one in a lot of ways. Uh, my bipolar disorder has been relatively responsive to the forms of treatment um, that are available. That is not the case with everyone who suffers. Uh, I have had access to those forms of treatment, right? There's a level of economic privilege and access that I have that many people don't. Um, and other forms of identity that I hold also create these buffers of the, through the experience. So that um, my story of mental illness is not a universal story, uh, but, but uh, is a particular one, right? And I just want to name one example of that. Uh, when, when I had just gotten out of the hospital, I was beginning a dialectical behavior therapy group, which is a type of cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, and I, the psychologist who led the group was, was interviewing me during the initial intake. And during that intake, she said to me, um, it's, it's good to have you here. Uh, I don't usually have men in these groups. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Why do you think that is? And she said, well, I know why that is. Most men with your diagnosis are in jail. And so in the United States, mass incarceration and chronic homelessness take the place of a functioning mental health care system for a whole, whole lot of people. And if you just heard my story, if my story was the norm story about mental illness and faith, you would not hear that, right? You're going to hear a story about relatively positive experience with, with institution and with care um, that I, I hope could truly become the norm, but that unfortunately the reality is, isn't. So I just kind of want to name a few of those things up front um, to, 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 as, I, as I kind of go ahead and, and share, share, this, the, share the narrative and share the story, okay? So, uh, a bit of my story. So like I said, the summer after my first year at seminary, um, 
things were going really quite well. I had a, a great group of friends, uh, was living in a house with some wonderful housemates, and uh, so it was somewhat confusing to me and difficult for me to understand why it felt like uh, my life was completely falling apart at the seams. Uh, it was just this internal experience of, of despair, uh, of uh, these, these emotional waves or currents that seemed to be in the driver's seat of my life with me sort of sitting in the back seat saying like, wait, no, don't turn that way, right? Um, and uh, this, this experience kind of intensified and intensified. I found myself kind of isolating myself a lot in this basement apartment that I was living in um, in D.C. at the time. And uh, by the end of June had, had gotten uh, so serious that, that I was um, harming myself and was, uh, was really at the point where uh, I was pretty convinced that the that I would be better off if I were not alive, uh, and that the world, in fact, would be better off as well, that, that this was the sort of the sensible solution um, to, to my situation and to the situation of the world. Um, this got really scary. Uh, I was a, kind of uh, engaging in a lot of really risky behavior. Um, like, like I said, I was hurting myself. And meanwhile, I was taking biblical Hebrew and in the afternoons, going, going to class, like nothing was happening, right? And kind of like performing in class and you know engaging in the classwork and doing the homework and then going home and isolating and barely sleeping. And this got worse and worse uh, throughout uh, a particularly bad week at the end of June. Um, and eventually I reached out um, to the, the uh, National Lifeline, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, somebody on the end of the other end of the lifeline talked to me for quite a while and then said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of worried that about when I hang up with you, what's going to happen next? Is there a friend or someone you could connect with um, who, who you can let know what's going on with you? So uh, my friend Lindsay had called earlier, and she was at uh, Pacific School of Religion out in Berkeley. So because of the time difference, I thought maybe she would still be awake. I gave her a call, and we talked for a while, and then she gave me a directive, which was that I had to check in with her in the morning. Uh, if any of you knew my friend Lindsay, you would kind of have a sense that when she tells you to do something, you just do it. So <laughs> I had a clear, uh, clear check-in in, on the, on, in the morning rule to follow and called her in the morning and, and things were even worse. And we brainstormed some folks uh, who, I could, who I could reach out to uh, and eventually we got in touch with uh, a colleague who's a campus chaplain at a nearby university who, who drove me to Sibley Hospital in Washington, D.C. I find that it's helpful to share that um, during this whole time, I had housemates who were upstairs uh, and who were really supportive and good friends of mine. And the idea of climbing up the stairs and asking for their help just seemed insurmountable. I mean, it just seemed like too much to bear to get up those stairs, right? So that... Um, the 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 act the internal experience for me of bipolar disorder is socially isolating, even when it doesn't seemingly doesn't have to be from the outside. I don't know quite what the right way to say that is right. That there were there were in fact people quite close to me, um, and it was very difficult for me to think of reaching out to those people. Um, so I was at went to Sibley Hospital in Washington D.C. I was in the um, the ER for about eight hours. Um, but there was some uncertainty as to whether there was a bed available, right? We have a real shortage of psychiatric uh, beds overall in the U.S., uh, even in a place like D.C. that's comparatively relatively well-resourced, right, compared to a lot of the country. 
Um, and after eight hours, I was finally, uh, uh, I got lucky, and I, there was a bed, and I, I, I checked in into the, um, the psych floor at Sibley. Um, there's a, the nurse there who did my intake. Uh, you know, they have a series of standard questions that they have to ask you, one of which is, do you think you might hurt yourself? Which, you know, was why I was there. So I said yes, of course, you know. Uh, and then there was a question, uh, uh, do you think you might hurt anyone else? Well, the whole week I'd been on the phone with our uh, Verizon wireless uh, <laughs> provider. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have had that experience. It can be taxing on one's mental health. And I was what I would now recognize as hypomanic, right? I was kind of like the words were just sort of... <laughs> And I said, well, actually, I'm feeling really angry at Verizon Wireless right now. And this nurse, who was the absolute picture of mental health nursing professionalism, nothing I could say would ever shock her. She was completely unfazed, but, like, not cold, right? She's got her clipboard, and she's writing down what I said. And I said, you know, I'm really mad at Verizon Wireless. And she stopped, and she looked at me, and she dropped the professional thing for a second and said, honey, that just don't count. <laughs> So, God bless nurses. Um, um, I um, I was in Sibley for about two weeks. Uh, was put on uh, medication for the first time in my life. The doctors came up with some here's some things that this that might be going on with you, right? really my first experience like this. So there was a whole lot of language that was confusing to me and things that were sort of um, difficult to understand. A really obvious, like a basic example of that for me was, was the phrase rule out, right? So I was given a list of things that were rule outs, which I thought meant they had been ruled out, right? Like, like I didn't have these things, but rule out means that I might have those things, and they're so, so, right, just, you know, it, this was an entirely new world for me uh, of language and of, of medication, and of, right, this was, this was a scary and unfamiliar terrain that I was in. Um, so uh, after about two weeks in Sibley, I was feeling a bit more stable, a bit more safe. I left Sibley Hospital, and uh, after a few weeks, I was back in. Um, and then I left again and went into an outpatient program and then was, was back in Sibley again. So clearly the short-term hospitalization wasn't doing the trick for me, right? So I ended up uh, at uh, Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. I was at uh, Silver Hill for about two months. That's where I first started uh, with dialectical behavior therapy. That's where I was diagnosed uh, with type 2 bipolar disorder um, and started taking the, the kind of current set of medications that I'm on. And after uh, a, a few months at Silver Hill, I came back to D.C. and was safer and was more stable and was not in crisis anymore, and things were just really hard for a long time, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, I uh, tried to start up classes again at seminary, thinking that that would give some, some structure to, to my day, and at the time they told me um, that I couldn't do that. Uh, it was probably the right move. I probably needed that full year of medical leave, but it was communicated in a way that was pretty harmful and pretty hard to hear. So I was, though, able to start up uh, this internship that I had been scheduled to start in the fall, working with this group of college students at American University. And uh, I had met some of them before I'd gone to the hospital in, in Connecticut. 
So I felt I owed some sort of explanation of where I had been for the past six months. So I figured, well, and lying felt exhausting. So I said, well, I'll just tell them what's been going on and that I'm okay and that I've got doctors and um, you know everything's kind of taken care of and then we can get back to the work of ministry, right? Um, so I was scheduled to give a sermon early in the semester and, and get, you know, talked a little bit about my experience in the hospital and, and hoped that I had communicated, like, I'm okay, we're good, we can get on with things and not talk about this anymore, right? And uh, students started uh, coming to me uh, one at a time and saying things like, I really struggle uh, with anxiety and depression. I have a family member who has a severe mental illness. I have this friend who's going through this really dark time and I don't even have language to put on it. And I wasn't sure we could talk about it in church. Right? Um, but you have, so now we can. right? And I was like, oh. <laughs> um, and so that was the beginning of a, of a shift for me in understanding this experience not as an obstacle or a disruption between me and vocation, right, between me and ministry, between me and what I thought God is calling me to do with my life, Um, but instead as this this story, this experience, the set of lenses that I, I bring into the ministry that I feel called into that actually can create space and create openings and create invitations for people to be able to share their own stories and thus to experience good news and experience the the divine and experience the um, powerful, authentic, vulnerable nature of Christian community in a way that was actually perhaps um, better for uh, me being able to share that experience, right? Um, This is not, of course, to say, I, I, I don't think you're hearing me say this, but just in case, this is not to say that I believe that God gave me bipolar disorder in order that I could somehow um, be more effective in ministry. Um, That's not at all what I believe. But I did have uh, someone at seminary who said to me, you know, David, uh, you don't have to think that this experience is a gift, but I do think that there will be gifts within it. And I find that to be a, a helpful way of thinking about that, that, that it is okay to be angry um, and not want painful experiences. And also, within those experiences, often there are gifts for us and for our community um, to share. Um, so that, that's the, the sort of shift that uh, has kind of led to a lot of the writing that's, that's in the book. Um, just to give you a, a bit of a sense of, of what the book does, uh, I didn't want to write sort of a chronological uh, memoir for a number of reasons. One is that psych wards are boring, and so like, and then the next day I got up eventually and had breakfast. Didn't seem like it was the <laughs> most gripping narrative approach, um, and also because the the experience of mental health crisis and mental illness is this sort of fragmented, disrupted thing, right? The, the, it doesn't feel exactly like things march along in this this smooth order. So instead, what I've done is I've tried to weave together these three threads: one of personal narrative, one of theological reflection, and one of uh, the, the the practicalities of ministry. Um, weave them together uh, throughout the book in a series of chapters that sort of stand in tension with each other. So um, chapter one looks at uh, the presence of God, 
encountering Christ on the psych ward. And chapter 2 looks at the felt experience of the absence of God and how our traditions, particularly our biblical tradition, particularly the, the psalm laments, uh, create space within our worshiping community to acknowledge the very real experience uh, of the absence of God um, that, that is often, often, though not always, of course, the experience of people who are suffering. Um, chapter 3 and 4 look at um, shame, um, uh, shame as a way of understanding um, Christian language around sin, which we, we talked about some uh, yesterday with uh, Dr. Downey's uh, wonderful talk. Um, and then, so, so sin and shame on the one hand and, and grace on the other hand, and trying to take very seriously um, Paul's encounter with, with the divine that uh, leads him to articulate grace as sufficient, as enough, um, that I think creates some openness for days when, when enough is as good as we can do, right? When, when grace doesn't feel abundant or amazing, but the, 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 that, that maybe there is, there is manna on the ground that we are looking down at at our feet for us to collect to get through um, that day. Um, <clears throat> I look at images of uh, ministry and images of the divine and the way that they inform each other and the way that the experience of being on the psych floor uh, troubles some of our conceptions about uh, God, about God's, about uh, the way we understand God perhaps as distant or as powerful um, rather than as close or as intimate, the way that troubles our gendered understandings of God, our um, color images for God. Uh, and then I look at uh, images of uh, the way we, metaphors and images of understanding disease and um, di- diagnosis, and metaphors and images of how we understand healing and recovery, and hold those in tension. So that's, that's, uh, that, that's a kind of a brief uh, overview of some of the topics I try to cover in the book. So I want to, um, at about 25 minutes, so I just want to throw out uh, three, like I said, theological provocations, things that either I wish I had had more time and space to cover in the book, and um, one thing that's going to be the focus of, of my next book. Um, so one, one thing that I just touch on in the book that I wish I had had more time and space to devote to is the concept of medication as a means of grace. Um, Particularly, I, I come from a Wesleyan background, though I've defected to the Reformed tradition, and um, <laughs> I uh, and so this the concept of the means of grace is a really important one in my <clears throat> my understanding, my theological understanding. That um, th- though we do not work to earn God's grace or favor, there are these tangible things, be they practices or um, materials in our life, that somehow communicate grace to us, through which grace is communicated to us, um, and which we can sort of put ourselves in the way of God's grace. And so I'm uh, curious and wondering about the effects of conceptualizing medication and broader than medication treatment in general as a form of a means of grace. Um, the, the sacraments are a means of grace. And, of course, the old Augustinian definition of, of sacraments is um, an outward and visible or tangible sign of an inward and visible grace, right? Um, to, to conceive of medication as a tangible outward sign of God's grace, which is calling all of us into health and wholeness uh, and healing. Um, and how that perhaps provides... Um, 
a depth of meaning and a, a, a spiritual narrative around medication that the medical model has often been unable to provide for people, which has sometimes made the medical model one that I am deeply appreciative for and continue to be a, uh, you know, a consumer within, right? Um, uh, that that has sometimes made the medical model feel very alienating uh, and, uh, and isolating um, for folks for whom... Um, Spirituality is an overtly named uh, importance in their life. Um, so that's that's one thing I like. I said it in the book and was like, ah, I don't know how to deal with this, and kind of ran on. So that's one. Um, the second thing, the second theological provocation I'd like to name is uh, mental illness as a window into conversations around vocation, um, particularly um, thinking about vocation in terms of a call to life what uh, Patrick Reyes calls the call to survive um, and, uh, and the vocation of, of healing, of health, of wholeness. Uh, in the book, I talk about the story of Bartimaeus, uh, not an unproblematic text to, to bring into a conference on theology and disability, right? Um, but in the story of Bartimaeus at the end of Mark's gospel, uh, uh, the word call is used three times in rapid succession to describe Jesus communicating to Bartimaeus. Uh, Bartimaeus is called. People ask who Jesus is calling to, and Bartimaeus' friends say, get up and go to him, he is calling you. Um, And that rapid call, 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 and rapid succession in Mark's gospel evokes for me questions around vocation. Bartimaeus' vocation, his call from Jesus, isn't initially to follow Jesus or to accomplish anything or to do anything or to take on any particular job, but rather to experience health, to experience healing. Um, and so I, I propose just briefly in the book that, um, that understanding the vocation of wholeness, the vocation of health as sort of the original vocation, the original call, is a helpful shift from understanding mental illness and mental health struggles as barriers or vocations to our calls that we just have to get over or get through or get under to get back to what we're actually called to do, uh, which is usually a paying job, right? Um, So, vocation. And the third thing that I'll name just very quickly, and then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about, um, uh, is grace as a pre-existing condition. Um, which is what my, my, I'm working on a proposal now for my second book that's going to focus on this. And looking at the mental health system in the United States and the ways that it systemically prevents a lot of people from getting care, I am struck by how theological the language of health care often is um, perhaps, or I think definitely unintentionally, right? So the question of what is and isn't pre-existing is a deeply Christian theological question. The question of whether things are universal or individualized, a Christian theological question. So I'm very interested in bringing the language of theology and spirituality to bear on debates around healthcare and around um, challenging the brokenness of the mental health system in the United States. And I think that if we understand, which I do, grace as pre-existing, in other words, we are called into being by the grace of God, our communities are formed in and through the grace of God, 
that grace comes before, that exactly the function grace performs, and again, this maybe is particularly Wesleyan with the idea of prevenient or preventing grace, that exactly what grace does is is at work before our ability to do or say or respond in any way, then our then that pre-existing grace affects the way that we think about what is and isn't pre-existing and names health, human wholeness, um, a, a creative intent as the truly pre-existing condition that challenges the idea that a particular health struggle can be a stain not only on my ability to access care, but but a spiritual stain, right? A, a weight that I carry um, as somebody who has now moved into some sort of separate category that makes me particularly risky or dangerous to provide care to. Um, if that sounds like an incomplete thought, it is. <laughs> um, so I just will kind of throw that out there and um, happy to, to see and hear uh, what struck you or what, uh, what uh, might have provoked a response from you. So thank you.